Good morning, loved ones. I'm so happy that we have this time that we can share together and walk with each other through God's Word. If this is your first time joining us, allow me to introduce myself. My name is Charles, and I am the pastor here at Hickory Rock Baptist Church in Lewisburg, North Carolina. And if you're watching our video, you'll notice that the setting looks a little bit different uh, today. It's because I'm uh, shooting this live on location at my alma mater, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina, and I'm very happy to be using their facilities today. But we are going to be starting today a, uh, a journey through the book of Colossians. We're going to put our uh, study of Matthew on hold just for a few weeks, and in the next six weeks, we're going to go through this very awesome and powerful letter to the Colossian believers. And it's my prayer every week, this week included, that our time spent together in God's word will help you in your walk with Christ. And so if you would join me in a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into our lesson today from Colossians chapter one. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord God, we love you. We thank you for your word and we thank you for Christ. And Father, we pray and ask that you will give us open ears and open hearts, that you will allow us to receive your word, that you will help us to sit under its authority and be transformed by it. And Father, I ask that you will help us to dwell on and meditate upon and just savor your word, that we will hide it in our hearts so that we might not sin against you. And Lord, I ask that you will just empower us through your Holy Spirit to follow you more faithfully, more humbly, more joyfully, and more obediently. Lord, we love you. And again, we thank you for Christ. And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. So today, loved ones, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 14 of Colossians 1. And as you're turning there and getting ready in your Bibles, I just want to set the stage for you by telling you about an incredible song that was released in May of 1956. Now, this song was recorded and was released, and it became one of the most recognizable country rock and roll songs of all time. And this song is... Is I Walk the Line by Johnny Cash. This would go on to be Johnny Cash's first number one hit, and it helped establish him as a force, as an identity in the country music scene. But if you go behind the music, as it were, you discover the tragedy of this song. You see, Johnny Cash recorded I Walk the Line to be something of a love song, a song of devotion and commitment to his wife, whom he had just married, I believe, two years before. And the, the song's lyrics, I keep a close watch on this heart of mine. I find it very, very easy to be true because you're mine, I walk the line. All of these things reflect Johnny's desire to remind his wife, to comfort his wife, that while he's out touring and performing, he's being faithful and true. He's trying to remind his wife that she has nothing to fear because he is walking the line. But if you know anything about the early years of Johnny Cash's career, you'll know that this could not have been any further from the truth. Even though Johnny so beautifully and so eloquently and so lucratively sang about being true, and though I'm sure that he desperately desired to be true and to be faithful, the fact of the matter is that the darker side of fame, the sex, the drugs, the rock and roll, they all caught 
up with him. And these things cost Johnny Cash that marriage. Not to mention the fact that they also very nearly cost him both his career, but more importantly, his life. And this song that began and came from a place of promise eventually became a painful reminder of promises broken. And if that were the story, if that's where the story ended, how tragic that would be. But thankfully, it's not by God's power and by God's grace and with patient love from those around him, Johnny Cash got cleaned up. He regained his career. And today, we can't help but think of Johnny Cash. We can't think of him without thinking of the woman who helped get his life turned around, that being, of course, his second wife, June Carter Cash. But this turnaround was only possible because those who loved Johnny Cash, those who saw what he was doing to himself, how he was not walking the line, they stepped in and they helped set him straight. And eventually they helped him to indeed walk the line. And what we find before us today in a way is very much the same thing. Paul's letter to the church in Colossae, the book of Colossians, is very much the same thing. Paul hears good reports coming out of this church, and this brings joy to his heart. But he also knows that there are things that cause him concern. There are other things that he's hearing going on in Colossae that he needs to address. And Paul desperately wants these Colossian believers and us today to walk the line, to walk worthy of the Lord. And in order to do that, Paul has to address the Colossians. He has to talk about, correct some bad teaching that is going on in that place. And Paul has to correct these things because if these bad teachings were left unchecked, then the church in Colossae would inevitably fall into the same kind of spiritual ruin that was very similar to the physical ruin that Johnny Cash experienced that we just talked about a moment ago. So Paul writes this letter to the Colossians to remind them of what is important, to remind them of what they must focus on as they are walking through this world. And that one thing that they must focus on is Jesus. This letter from start to finish is about the supremacy, the centrality, the complete awesomeness of Jesus, how he has been God's plan from the very beginning and how he has saved us and how we must live out externally the internal change that Jesus has brought to us. This letter is about how we must keep Jesus as the central focus of our lives. And today, as we look at Paul's introduction, his opening statement here, we can break it down into three different movements. We're going to see a greeting, a hymn of thanksgiving, and also a prayer for continued growth. But if you want to say it in a much more fun way and to keep our music motif going this morning, we could summarize the three movements in the words of Jim Morrison, so to speak. We could break it down and say that Paul here says, hello, I'm thankful for you, and I want you to grow. So if you would join me in Colossians 1, we're going to read verses 1 through 14, and we'll go from there. It says this, 
Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by God's will, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints in Christ at Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You have already heard about this hope and the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard of it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. You learned this from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has told us about your love and the Spirit. Verse 9, For this reason also, since the day we have heard of this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened in all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance and the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In him we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Now here, as we go through the opening of this letter, we might be tempted simply to look past Paul's introductory comments at the outset and just kind of chalk them up to being the kind of pleasantries that one uh, comes up with when they're trying to start a letter. We come up with these kind of pleasantries all the time. Each and every time we write an email, we say something along the lines of, I hope this email finds you well, and then we go on from there. But while Paul is indeed greeting those who will be reading and hearing this letter, he's not simply doing that. He's not only here greeting them. Even in this very brief opening statement in verses 1 and 2 where Paul says hello, even here Paul is teaching the Colossians two very important things. He's teaching them who's in charge and what their true identity is. We see first that Paul opens this letter by reminding the Colossians of who is in charge. And while we might be tempted to look at Paul's words where he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, and we might think that he's on some sort of holy power trip, that he's lording his status over them, that's not at all what's going on right here. Actually, quite the opposite is taking place. You see, Paul's admission that he is an apostle comes with the simultaneous admission that this was by no doing of his own. He tells us that he was commissioned, that he was sent out by Jesus, by God's will. His status, his position as an apostle is through no doing of his own. Instead, 
It's the opposite. Paul's position as an apostle is a visible demonstration of God's love and God's grace. Let's not forget Paul's origin story and let's remember that Paul only became an apostle by a divine act of God's mercy and grace. And with all of that in mind, we have to remember that the letter that Paul is here writing to the Colossians, his words and counsel shouldn't be heeded simply because it's coming from Paul. Instead, Paul is telling us that this message is coming to them from God. And it's because it's God's message that it must be heeded and followed. Paul, as always, is simply the messenger. Secondly, we see here, that Paul is reminding the Colossians of their true identity. Now, there's more than what meets the eye here in verse 2, and we're not going to go too deep into it, but just listen as we go through this. It's obvious here in verse 2 that Paul is addressing fellow believers. He calls them saints, which means that they have been set aside and been selected by God to be his people. And we see here that these people are faithful in following God. They're faithful in their identity as God's people. So you might be asking yourself, what more could there be here? This seems to be very, uh, pretty uh, uh, obvious, pretty self-evident. Well, look at how Paul addresses these saints. Look at how he locates them. In the Greek, Paul writes that this letter is to the saints in Christ at Colossae, to the saints in Christ at this specific place. So Paul is saying, yes, Colossian believers, you live in the physical location of Colossae. That's the city that you live in. That is your identity. But being in that place, being part of that city, that identity as Colossians, that's not what saves you. It's not what saves you any more than our identity as Americans or wherever you might be today where you're watching or listening. Our identity doesn't save us. It's not what buys us God's favor and blessing. These believers are saints. We are saints today because we are in Christ. That's what our salvation is rooted in. It's not by any merit or measure of our own. It's not in any action of our, our own undertaking that we're saved. It's because we are in Christ. The phrase in Christ is the way that the New Testament most commonly refers to those who follow Christ. And loved ones, there is something fundamentally important about remembering and understanding that our salvation is rooted not in ourselves, that it's rooted and grounded in the fact that we have been joined together, that we have union with Christ. We're not saved because we follow Jesus. Loved ones, we're saved because we are in Jesus. He is our ark. He is the vessel by which we are saved. And Paul wants the Colossian believers to remember that. And with that, Paul wants the Colossian believers to remember, and us as well, to remember that since we are in Christ, since uh, because we are in Christ, we are now the recipients 
of grace and peace that can come only from God, our Father. Because we are in Christ, we have pardon, we have forgiveness, we have salvation. We don't get what we truly deserve, a.k.a. we have grace. And with that, because we are in Christ, we have a reine, we have shalom, we have peace. Now, remember something here. Biblical peace refers to something that was broken, being made whole once more. And because we are in Christ, we have a restored, renewed, rebuilt relationship with God. And these things, grace and peace, forgiveness and reconciliation, they go hand in hand. And they're not attained by any merit of our own. They're not attained by any action that we undertake. These things are given to us simply and purely through everything that Jesus has already done. We receive grace and peace because we are in Jesus. And these things are available only in Jesus. And we know this. This should be following Jesus 101. So why is Paul here reminding us of this? Well, loved ones, if we're being honest, he's reminding us because we need the reminder. If we're being honest with each other, we know and we'll admit that we often look for this same kind of grace, this same kind of peace in other places. We look for meaning, for fulfillment, for identity, in other places. We look for other sources of hope, but Paul is here reminding us that it is impossible for us to be saints, for us to be God's people outside of Christ. And he's also reminding us that everything we need, our hope, our identity, our fulfillment, our rescue, is found only by being in Christ. And with that in mind, Loved ones, why would we ever look anywhere else? Well, as we move on into verses 3 through 8, we see that Paul follows up this powerful greeting by telling the Colossians that he is thankful for them. And specifically, he spells out what he's thankful for. He tells them that he's thankful for the Colossian believers' belief in the gospel, that he's thankful for the fruit that's being produced in them, and that he's thankful for the continued spread of the gospel around the world. And throughout these verses, Paul says again and again how he prays for the Colossians, and that he rejoices to hear how they have come to faith in Christ and how they live that faith out. He commends them for the love that they have for other churches. And with that, he tells them that the gospel is continuing to spread around the world and that other believers are being transformed by it. That in the very same way that the Colossian believers heard and received and were transformed by the gospel, this same thing is occurring again and again in many new places and with many new people. But notice something very interesting in verse 7. Paul tells us here, that the Colossians learned of the gospel from a guy named Epaphras. Now, you might be wondering, why is this important? Why do we need to focus in on this detail? Well, it's important because this shows us that Paul did not plant a church 
in Colossae. Paul did not found that church. And based on what we know of Paul's travels in the book of Acts and in his other letters, it seems unlikely that Paul ever went to the city of Colossae. Now, he did ministry in the general area, in the region where Colossae is located. And we can assume that people that he influenced went to Colossae and preached there. But Paul himself never went to this city. So why is this a big deal? Well, I want you to see something here. I want you to look at how Paul is gushing over these believers, how he's commending them, how he's encouraging them, how he's praying for them, how he's exhorting them, how he's thanking God for them. And yet, he doesn't even know them. His attitude is, I don't know you, but I thank God for you. Look at the love that Paul is pouring out to these believers. And he loves them simply because they are God's people, simply because they are his brothers and sisters in Christ. He loves them without even knowing them. And he understands that he doesn't need to know them to love them because God already knows them and because God loves them and because God has called them to himself. I want you to look at this love that Paul has for these believers. And then I want us to pivot and to ask ourselves a potentially uncomfortable question. Brothers and sisters, do we demonstrate the same? kind of love? Do we demonstrate it? Yes, for our global church, for brothers and sisters around the world. Do we pray for those who are being faithful in places where that is hard, in places where it is hard to be a Christian? Do we pray for advances of the gospel and for people to grow in holiness and love of Christ? But loved ones, do we also have this same kind of love for our brothers and sisters here in our community, here at Hickory Rock? Do we demonstrate this same kind of thankfulness and love to our brothers and sisters here? And do we let our fellow believers in this church know that we love them and that we're thankful for them? Not only that, but are we praying now for people who have yet to come to our community, who have yet to come to our church? And are we ready to welcome them with love and thanks when they do arrive? And does this attitude of love and care and thanks, does this extend throughout the week? Do we check in on each other? Do we follow up on each other? Or do we just see each other on Sundays? Do we just join together on Sunday mornings and have a little holy huddle with our church click before or right after the worship service? And do we just simply leave it at that? And loved ones, my question is this, if that's what we're doing, just having these small holy huddles once a week, how can we build community together? How can we do life together? How can we grow together? If the only time we spend together is on Sunday morning, Jesus told the disciples in John chapter 13 that the world will know that we are his followers by our love for each other. And there was a popular hymn in the 1960s that capitalized on this same thought. Loved ones, is this true of 
us. Do people know Hickory Rock for our love, both for our love for each other and for the outside world? And if we're not known for our love, brothers and sisters, then what are we known for? As we move on now into verse nine, verses 9 through 14, Paul tells the Colossian believers why he keeps praying for them. And it's because he wants them to continue growing in faith and in holiness. He wants to keep them to keep striving toward maturity. He wants them to be filled with knowledge of God's will in all wisdom and spiritual knowledge. Now, Paul uses this particular phrase, spiritual knowledge, because later in this letter, he is going to be addressing and correcting some bad spiritual teaching that is being spread in Colossae. But here, in this instance, Paul leaves no questions, no doubts about the spiritual knowledge that he is speaking of. He's being very clear here. He wants the Colossian believers to grow in the spiritual knowledge that will help them walk worthy of the Lord. The spiritual knowledge that will help them walk the line. And just so, again, there's no debate or question about which knowledge helps one to do just that, Paul explains it even further. He tells us that such spiritual knowledge helps one to please the Lord, to help bear good fruit through good works, he tells us that helps that such knowledge helps one grow in knowledge of God. And there the word he uses for knowledge refers to a specific, intimate kind of knowledge. The kind of knowledge where if somebody asks you, hey, do you know so-and-so? You can say, yes, I know that person. Not simply, I know of that person, but that you know them specifically. Additionally, Paul wants the Colossians to grow in this spiritual knowledge because such knowledge helps them to be strengthened by God's power so they might have patience and endurance in this life and so they might be thankful in everything they do. Paul's very, uh, very clear here. He's very precise in what he's speaking of. The spiritual knowledge that he is referring to isn't some sort of abstract secret, hidden knowledge that only the enlightened few have access to. The knowledge that Paul is speaking of leads to growth and holiness. It leads to displays of love. It leads to wanting to know God more. It leads to a patient and enduring trust, and it leads to giving. Thanks. So if we were to follow Paul's line of thinking here, we could see that he is telling us that if the knowledge you are seeking doesn't lead to these things, then you should stop seeking it. Stop seeking that dead-end knowledge that leads you away from Christ and seek the knowledge that helps you grow in Christ. It makes me think of an old skit that used to be on the uh, TV show, Hee Haw. Uh, on the skit, somebody would be going to this old country doctor and they'd go in, they'd say something like, doctor, it hurts when I do my arm like this. And the doctor would come up to him and he'd hit them with a book or something and he'd say, well, stop 
doing that. Paul is very much here saying the same thing. If this knowledge that you seek doesn't lead you to grow in holiness and to grow closer to Christ, then stop seeking that knowledge. Now as we move into verses 12 through 14, we see something powerful here. Paul was just telling us why we should walk worthy of the Lord. Now he's telling us why we must walk worthy of him. And in verse 12, Paul spells out something incredible for us. He tells us that we should joyfully give thanks to the Father because he has enabled us to share in the saints' inheritance. And I want us to focus in on that word inheritance for just a moment. It's vital here for what we're talking about. Think about who receives an inheritance. A child. A child of somebody. And at this time, at this place in the world and history, usually that child was going to be a male. And usually he was going to be the oldest male. So if you weren't the oldest male descendant, the oldest male child, chances are you didn't get an inheritance. But Paul is here telling us, that God gives each of us an inheritance. And it doesn't matter if we're male or female, if we're Jew or Gentile, if we're black or white, if we're Democrat or Republican, if we have been called to be saints of God, then we have also been called to be God's children. And we are children who are each given the rights of inheritance from God the Father. And we have this inheritance, we have this privilege, we have this status as God's children because God has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness. He has rescued us from being dead in our sins and trespasses, and he has brought us into Christ's kingdom. He's transferred us into the kingdom of the Son whom he loves. And Paul reminds us again that it is this Son, Christ Jesus, whom we are in, that because we are in him, that we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Redemption meaning that our price for freedom has been paid. Our debt of sin has been paid so that our sins could be washed away and forgiven. And in many ways, loved ones, verses 13 and 14 here, encapsulate the entirety of the Bible. We know that the whole story of the Bible is about God bringing humanity back to himself. We sinned in the garden. We rebelled. We were exiled from God and from the garden. And from that point forward, we just keep going farther and farther and farther away from God. And all the while, we're looking for a kingdom of our own. We're looking for a kingdom that, we're, uh, that we can belong to. And each and every step of the way, we get hijacked and kidnapped by false kingdoms. And these false kingdoms do nothing but hurt us and exploit us. First it was Egypt, then it was Babylon, and then it was Rome. And these earthly powers, these earthly kingdoms, all they are doing is just standing in and representing the even vaster power and kingdom of death and sin that we are all enslaved to. But through Jesus, loved ones, God defeats these counterfeit powers. Through Jesus, God rescues us 
from these imitator kingdoms. Through Jesus, God ends our exile and he gives us an inheritance as his children. And through Jesus, God welcomes us back home with open arms. He welcomes us back into his very presence where we should have been all along. And we'll pick up in verses 13 and 14 next week as we continue our study of Colossians. But as we bring this in today, loved ones, I want us to go full circle. We started today by talking about Johnny Cash and walking the line. And here we see where Paul lays out to us how and why we must walk the line, how and why we must walk worthy of the Lord. And as we go further into this letter, Paul is going to flesh these things out for us even more. But now, as all of this settles and marinates in our minds, we need to examine our walks. And we need to ask ourselves, does our walk match our talk? Does our walk reflect the things that Paul is addressing here? Or are we telling God that we walk the line all the while we keep running around on him with whatever happens to strike our fancy? And we have to remember, loved ones, that this is not a solitary endeavor. This is not something that we do on our own. This is a communal, a corporate endeavor. So are we doing this with each other? Are we seeking to help each other grow? Are we pushing each other toward holiness, pulling one another sometimes when necessary? Are we helping each other grow in holiness? Well, if we love each other, we must. Surely you wouldn't put up with a pastor who didn't love you enough to push you towards holiness. Why then don't you love your brother or sister enough to help them grow in holiness as well? Are we thankful for each other? Do we show it? Do we tell each other that we love them and that we're thankful for them? Are we known for our love? And let's not forget, dear hearts, that we have received an unimaginable outpouring and demonstration of love. We have received grace and peace. We have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Christ. We have been made children of God with an inheritance in his kingdom. We have been given forgiveness and redemption. We have received more love than we can ever fathom. But does that love flow out from us? Do we show it? Are we known for it? I think at the end of the day, loved ones, our question is this. Are we walking the line or are we not? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you for Christ and we thank you for the vast transformation in us, in our lives, in our world that you have brought through him. And Father, I pray and ask that you will empower us to do what Paul is encouraging us here to do, to walk worthy of the Lord to walk worthy of you, to put our faith into practice, to put away the things that distract us, to put away the things that draw our attention away from you, and to focus centrally, exclusively, only on Christ, and to, and to focus on growing in knowledge of him. 
focus on growing in holiness and pursuing him. Father, would you help us to show this love to one another? Would you help us to show this love to those around us? And would you help us to show this love to this community where you've planted us? Father, it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.